Release the Geek, the official podcast of Geek XP. Curse your sudden but inevitable betrayal. Question me, Rose. Run for your life. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you happen to be. Thank you for taking time out of your day to join us for Release the Geek, the official podcast of Geek XP. Dave Gibbons is, to put it simply, a titan in the comic book field. While it's easy to say that he might be best known for his collaboration with Alan Moore on Watchmen, Inkpot and Jack Kirby award winner Gibbons has amassed more than an enviable body of work. He co-created Rogue Trooper alongside Jerry Finley Day for 2000 AD and also worked on Judge Dredd, Dan Deere, The Harlem Heroes, and The ABC Warriors for the same publication. Gibbons worked with Moore again to create what is widely acknowledged as one of the best Superman stories of all time for the man who has everything. Working alongside Len Wein, Gibbons made Jon Stewart the primary character of Green Lantern and in a synergistic full circle, he worked on the title that was his favorite as a child, World's Finest, starring Superman and Batman. Dave was gracious enough to take time out of his busy schedule to chat to us about a range of topics, including his path to geekdom, getting his first comic book assignments, and who is still on his bucket list to work with. We pass this podcast over to Franku and the Diva for their rating. Franku, what did the Diva have to say? The Diva has enjoyed this podcast and rates it... Completely salt-free. Thank you kindly to both Franku and the Diva for that rating, but for now, without any further ado, please join me, Les Allen, and co-host Vittorio Leonardi as we release The Geek with Dave Gibbons. And now, we're releasing The Geek. Um, we we try to yes. we try to be professional with release the geek. We really do. <laughs> so, so do I. So, so do I. <laughs> so occasionally we'll we'll do a bit of research uh, on on the person. With occasionally, sometimes we just fly blind. But um, yeah, I've looked up the uh, your talent page on DC Comics, and you it reminds me of a quote from yeah. uh, Robert Heinlein. Uh, a human sh- being should be able to yep. change a diaper, plan an invasion, butcher a hog, con a ship, design a building, write a sonnet, balance accounts, build a wall, <laughs> set a bone, comfort the dying, take orders, give orders, cooperate, act alone, solve equations, analyze a new problem, pitch manure, program a computer, <laughs> cook a tasty meal, fight efficiently, die gallantly, because specialization is for insects. <laughs> I think those are very wise words, and I reckon I could do about eighty percent of that. Oh, nice! Well, see, I was I was leading in with a joke here because you're credited as a colorist, writer, inker, penciler, letterer, cover colorist, artist. Yeah, yeah. So I could do even more than eighty percent of those. I could do a hundred percent of them. <laughs> very good, very good. Ted, what was what, what was your path to geekdom? How did it start for you? My path to geekdom? Well, now it's very, very interesting that you should be talking to me from South Africa, because South Africa actually does loom rather large in this particular legend. Ah. Now now, I've recently been um, looking through my archives, in other words, my old cardboard boxes for uh, my uh, 
you know, childhood drawings and writings and uh, things of interest because I'm currently writing my autobiography. Oh, wow. Uh, and I found, I found the very first drawing that I ever did of Superman, and I'm immediately going to give give away my age here because it it shows Superman, uh, you know, drawn in pencil, coloured very loosely with watercolour, uh-huh. flying above what is very loosely a city, and it says Superman, alias Clark Kent. You see, I was giving the game away immediately, and it's signed. It's signed very ornately, David Gibbons. In fact, the signature is slightly better drawn than the figure of Superman. <laughs> and, it is dated, and it is dated the 26th of December, 1958. Wow. So I can only imagine that I got a Superman annual as a Christmas gift, and this was me copying a picture of Superman out of it. So I was very, very young then. And growing up in England and liking American comics, which I did from that early age, um, I knew a couple of people locally who sort of were interested in comics in the in the way that kids are at the appropriate age, but nobody who was quite as insanely fixated on them as I was. But one day uh, in the British comic The Eagle, which I'm sure you've, yes. you've heard of, it's... It's perhaps the most famous British comic, featured the adventures of Dan Dare. It was a wonderful, mm. full-colour weekly comic. Yes. Um, and it had a letters page. It had letters to the editor. And one day there was a brief letter, which I've also found in, in my excavations, which said, um, I am publishing uh, a magazine about comics. If any of your readers would be interested in receiving a copy, wow. please send, you know, to this address. And it was a guy called John Wright, who was based in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. And he's he's advertising an eagle. An eagle. He'd written a letter to the eagle and they printed it. And so I immediately responded to that. I thought, oh, my God, you know, there are are people in this world who actually, you know, seem to care as much as I do about this this stuff. So I wrote... So I wrote to John Wright, who was very cordial and very generous, and actually sent me not only the second issue of his fanzine, but a spare copy of the first issue as well. Oh, that's very and cool. And he put me in touch. He put me in touch with a couple of other Englishmen who had English boys who had responded to this, and that was really my first introduction to comics fandom. And from there, um, you know, my my interest. Um, was was less of a solitary thing, and in mm. varying degrees shared with fellow fans. That's that's incredible. Were you always were you always drawing? Was that the the key thing for you? Yeah, I I always loved to draw, but more than that, and again, it's it's interesting having looked through my archives that what I loved to do was actually draw comics. You know. Most of the stuff I've kept is actually the beginnings of stories. You know, I would tend to get bored by about page four or five, but it would always start off with a splash page, just like in an American comic, and then a mystery being set up or something dramatic mm-hmm. happening, and then our heroes coming on the scene. Um, and so it was always comics. And I don't know whether that was an early form of um, attention-seeking, you know, in as much as if you show somebody a picture, they go, oh, yeah, nice. But if you show them a story, they have to take the time to read it. Yes. Um, that may have, you know, that may have had something to do with it. 
But I think I just always, always, and still do, love the idea of telling stories in that comic strip form. Right. When uh, when you were at school, was uh, was did you major in art? Were what were your leanings from a from a work perspective when you wanted to leave school? Well, no, this um, I was quite precocious at school. Some would say I'm still quite precocious, but I was quite <laughs> precocious at school. Um, and um, we used to have um, an examination in England, which depended, or which which decided which school you went to, whether you went to a kind of a, um, 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 a state school or whether you went to a grammar school, right? Um, or even better. Um, and this was called the Eleven Plus. And I actually got this, my successful result in that on my 10th birthday. So I was a little bit ahead of the curve. I could always read very well at school, which I put down to my early experience reading comics and mm-hmm. getting my parents to read to me and trying to figure out what the word balloons mm-hmm. was, were saying. So the school that I went to was a kind of a stereotypical British uh, sort of quasi public school right. where the teachers would wear black gowns and mortarboards and oh, we would wow. wear stripy blazers. We, we'd wear those straw boater hats in the summer. Um, so it was quite a posh kind of school. Mm-hmm. And the kind of people they were turning out were destined to go to Oxford or Cambridge or to become doctors mm-hmm. or architects or something like that. Sure. So, uh, and, and there was really no facility to do art at all we'd have an art lesson up until about the third year mm-hmm. um and i always did very very well in that and used to hang around in the art room then that stopped because we had more more important exams to study for sure my parents um my parents were quite indulgent of me um they and my grandparents would but would buy me comics and my dad actually worked in town planning so he would have a lot of no longer needed uh, plans, you know, big sheets of paper mm-hmm. um, that that being finished with that he would bring home and fold up or chop up into sketchbooks for me. So there was always tons of spare paper around the house. Okay. He would draw his plans using ink and watercolour. Mm-hmm. So there would always be those those around the place. But I do have a memory of maybe when I was about twelve years old. And I've had to kind of reconstruct this, you know, in the way that things happen to you when you're a kid and you you only realize afterwards what was actually going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my dad took me to see my dad took me to see the local artist who was a typical artist. who was a guy who wore like sandals and corduroy trousers and an itchy <laughs> jumper and had a beard and smoked roll, roll up cigarettes and was a bit long haired, you know. And he I was told to bring with me what I was working on at that time. And what I was working on at that time was I was completely redrawing a whole issue of World's Finest, which was my favorite comic, you know, where Batman and Superman teamed up. Yes. And I'd really just copied the whole thing. I just copied the whole thing line line for line. And I'd I'd only changed it so it was now Atom Man rather than Superman and Birdman rather than Batman. Right. And funnily enough, the... The, the villain in that issue was called the duplicate man. So, you know, that was kind of interesting. Anyway, and I can remember being in this artist's studio, which smelt of roll-up cigarettes and oil paint, and him and my dad going off for a little huddle. And I'm pretty sure, I didn't hear the conversation, but I'm pretty sure it was 
you know, do you think he's good enough to be an artist when he grows up? And I'm pretty sure the artist must have said to him, as I would have said, well, he obviously likes to draw and he's put a lot of work into this, but it's quite clearly copied. So right. I don't know that he's really got an original talent. Sure. So um, I, I, I kind of put those ideas on one side. Um, and again, it, it, it was, and I was going to be an architect, but I really didn't have the fire in my belly to do that. It's a very mm -hmm. long course with a very low success rate. I eventually became a building surveyor, which is kind of almost like, like an architect. Right. Um, and I really didn't enjoy that so much. And I started to think about maybe I could, could get into comics again. Okay. Well, you, uh, you just mentioned that uh, World's Finest was your favorite. I was going to ask, was you uh... a... Yeah. Were you a DC? Were you a Marvel way? But uh, growing up in the UK, you had access to mm -hmm. a host of other comics that most people in North America or even around the world didn't necessarily see. Yeah, I mean, um, the, 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 the strange thing was with the comics we got in England, that there had been uh, an outcry, as there had been in several countries, in the early 1950s about you know horror comics which were supposed yeah. to be rotting the minds of children uh, they they weren't they were actually more giving them subversive thoughts about how they might uh, up up um, up upend how they might upend polite society as much as anything right. um, and so we didn't get we didn't get American comics directly imported into England for, for quite a while, not until the very end of the 50s. But what we used to get were reprints of those that were imported from Australia. So, oh. you know, the American comics I saw were, were Australian reprints, which, which were now sold in, um, in uh, England. Wow. Um, so we, we got those, we got those, but we also got the weekly comics, the Eagle, which I mentioned, the Beano, the Dandy, the Victor, the Lion, you know, adventure comics and humor comics. Yes. We also got, uh, we also got War Picture Library, which were very, very popular when I was growing up. I mean, after all, it was only a couple of decades after the end or less after the end of the First World War. And a lot of those comics, which I loved, were actually drawn by European artists, as were the weeklies, uh, quite often Spanish or Italian artists. Mm. And they just were wonderful, wonderful draftsmen. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I drew up, I grew up on a really rich and varied um, kind of diet of comics. Mm. And I think that might be why, you know, I was quite easily able and happy to work in British comics mm. and then later work in American comics without too much stylistic um difficulty mm. when uh, what do you remember your first paid comics gig <laughs> yes i do and, and and indeed you know as i mentioned earlier and probably will again it th this very well timed this interview because i've just been looking through all this stuff so it's very very fresh in in, in my mind um what what happened after i became a building surveyor i, I actually worked in london um, and in the city of London. And um, uh, I used to go out of the office to look at, uh, you know, broken lavatories and falling down walls and windows that needed repair. So I'd book myself out of the office in, in my diary and I'd go and quickly look at whatever 
building defect I had to look at. And I then go to the uh, second-hand bookshops, of which there were many <laughs> in the part of London. Um, I, I was in and I filled in my comic book collection and, you know, got really excited about the whole thing again. And I, um, I um, picked up an American comic, which was uh, drawn by, it said, young Britisher Barry Smith. And it wasn't very well drawn. And the little light bulb went on above my head. Hey, these American comics don't have to be drawn by uh, Italian-Americans who clearly work for the mob. You know, people <laughs> like Basima, Infantino, G Giacoya. It is possible for a young Britisher to make it in American comics because this Barry Smith has. So mm. therefore, if he can make it, I should be able to make it. And I can. I reckon I can draw better than him anyway. Yeah. So I completely redrew this issue of Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. That was the, that was the comic, Nick oh, Fury, Agent yeah. of S.H.I.E.L.D. Wow. And, and, and I then got in touch with this friend of mine who I'd been introduced to by John Wright from South Africa. Mm -hmm. I hope you're paying, paying attention here. Yep. Uh, who I knew was now a professional artist. So I told, I asked him, what, what should I do with this? And he advised me to go and see this guy called Des Skin, who worked for British Comics. But he also published a fanzine. So I went and saw him, and he gave me some stuff to do for his fanzine. And I started hanging around the offices of Fleetway Comics, who were the biggest UK publishers of comics, oh. and also very conveniently had to be round the corner from where I worked as a building surveyor. <laughs> nice. Um, very nice. So I, so I gave him, I gave him my redrawing of the Barry Smith comic book job, and he took it upstairs to the office and showed it to the guy at the next desk. Now, the guy at the next desk was uh, a fellow called Steve Parkhouse, who happened to be Barry Smith's best friend, <laughs> and who had also <laughs> and who had also written the issue of S.H.I.E.L.D. that I had chosen to redraw. Oh, you're kidding. So that was, no, it's true. It's an amazing co coincidence. So I learned then that the world of comics was very, very small. I don't know whether Barry Smith ever saw what I'd drawn, but I later <laughs> got to know Steve Parkhouse very well. And in fact, by looking over Steve Parkhouse's shoulder, I learned the real tricks of doing comic book lettering. Right. Uh, and indeed, the very first work that I ever got paid for was a page of lettering in a British weekly called Core, C-O-R, two there exclamation marks. Um, and I, I have got that page, not the, not the original art, but I've got the printed copy of that page, which is not very well lettered, I have to say. <laughs> and I've also got... I, I also discovered um, a Xerox copy of the check that I received, oh. which was for two pounds and ten pence, which would just about buy you half a pint of beer these days. Yeah, two pounds ten. Nice. And uh, well, at the time yeah. with your first with your first paycheck, did you do anything extravagant, Dave? I'm, I maybe actually had half a pint of beer to celebrate, yeah, but no, no, I was, I was just so pleased that I'd finally got my toe in, 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 in the door, and uh, you know that 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 really was, uh, you, you know, there's such a difference when you actually get to know people who work in a field 
professionally. And when you get paid for it, because even small amounts, it means, well, at least someone thinks it's good enough to, to give you money for it. So that was really, you know, that sense of the door at least opening. Yeah. And because I was only around the corner from the publishers, I'm, I'm, I used to haunt the place and I'd be sure. up there quite often at lunchtimes. Sure. And then I, then I was, then I got to know when one of the artists for one of the comics was going on a long uh, vacation and I did some samples in his style so that I could fill in while he was away wow. and I did that for six weeks while I was still working as a surveyor so I really burnt the midnight oil for a few All weeks right. there but I, I made enough money that I thought okay I can support myself for a few months now because sure. it was now a little bit more than two pounds ten a page right. um, and um, really that that was in 1973 and really I've been a freelance comic book guy ever since how long did it take doing the freelance stuff before you decided I'm going to chuck in being uh, the surveying work <laughs> well, I actually chucked it in twice. I, I, I eventually got my final exam, you know, so I was a fully qualified surveyor and I cleared off to Spain for a few months. Right. And then when I came back, then when I came back, um, I, I managed to, I was actually headhunted by um, an agent who thought I was just about good enough that he could get me some, some work. In, in, in those days, the comic book business was such a big business that there were actually all oh, half a dozen people who were agents specializing in selling comic book artwork. And he got me this horror comic to, to, to do. And I vividly remember that my mum, bless her, had been kind enough to advance me the money to draw this. And so when I got the final check for it, I remember I said to her, okay, mum, I've, I've got my check. It's 80 quid. And wow. she said, great. I said, how much do I owe you? And she looked in her little diary and she said, well, you actually owe me £81.50, but I'll let you off the, the £1.50. <laughs> That's very sweet. So, <laughs> That's very, very sweet of me. Yeah, so, so I only just about broke even on that. And then I had to go back to work for a few months as a surveyor. But then, as I say, I, 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 I got some quite good money ghosting somebody else. Sure. And I was working for Underground Comics as well at the time. And... And from th then on, after that slightly false start, I, I, I've worked ever since. What was the horror comic? The, do you remember the title? Oh, I do. I do. It, it, <laughs> and it's, it's an awful, awful piece of work. Chances are it's, called, it's, called, <laughs> it's called The Dead Are Awake and Walking. And it basically concerned this girl whose boyfriend had died, but the boyfriend's mother kept his mummified body oh. in the sitting room. And she was a witch something, and she could conjure up the dead, and she did this thing to bring her son back to life, and it meant <laughs> half the population of the local graveyard came back to life and it was just pictures it was just just alternating pictures of corpses and and girls in their nightwear running from the corpses it was a truly truly horrible thing girls but in I their tell you, there was another <laughs> say again girls in their nightwear running from zombies nice i'm failing to see the yeah problem yeah i mean <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I hope that I've now bought up and destroyed all existing 
copies of it, but I, I do have one for my archives. <laughs> but I'm afraid you'd, you'd have to pay me more more than eighty pounds to get me to agree to show well, it to you. But the, but the strange the strange thing the strange thing about it is as well. You, you know, I mentioned before about coincidence. Well, the 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 guy that I knew from the letter in Eagle from the South African who mm. who produced this fanzine, which I'm sure you're now very very familiar with, John Wright, uh, who I became, yeah, John Wright was the guy from South Africa. Well, the one of the English fans that he put me in touch with, who pointed me in the right direction with my artwork, was called John Hudson, and in this Dead Dead Are Awake and Walking comic book. The dead boyfriend in that was actually called John Hudson. So, you know, I I have been accompanied by many sort of strange coincidences. I mean, I mean, like my initials are DC DC Gibbons, and um, one of the big (laughs) one of the biggest. One of the biggest British publishers of comics is DC Thompson. Mm-hmm. And as you know, American comics are published by Marvel and DC Comics. Yeah. Um, and then also the, the Eagle, which I, I loved, the first issue came out on my first birthday. So, you know, if you're a superstitious man, there's all kinds of weird kind of portents and omens and coincidences, which... Which clear, clearly show I was always destined to fulfill the role that I have. It's like you're on Constantine's <laughs> Synchronicity Highway. Just the signposts of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very, very spooky. Dave, Rogue Trooper, where did it come from? Rogue Trooper, well, um, I've been working for 2000 AD doing Harlem Heroes, mm-hmm. which was quite popular, and, and Dan Dare, which I made, if not very popular, more popular than it had been before I got my hands on it. Um, and um, I'd, I'd gone off to work for um, Marvel UK drawing Doctor, uh, Doctor Who, mm-hmm. and um, I got a call from the people on 2000 AD and said that they'd They'd done a reader survey to ask readers what sort of thing they wanted to see in 2000 AD. And the unanimous uh, uh, opinion seemed to be that they like future war. So they proposed to me that they could get me as, you know, one of their top artists, which I say in all modesty, but that's what they said to me. Um, And a guy called Jerry Finley Day, who was one of their top writers. Maybe they could get us to collaborate on doing a future war story. So we kicked a few ideas around and we came up with this idea of, you know, um, it was originally a guy who had a symbiotic backpack, you know, like a Mm. sort of monkey on his back. But then that morphed into having the, the souls of his oh, dead comrades wow. preserved. massive fan of Rogue Trooper. Oh wow! Oh good. I did not. I don't realize <laughs> I was reading your stuff for all these years because I just like. I was going, oh yes, more. <laughs> oh wow! So it was you guys that came up with Gunner, Helm, Bagman, all that stuff. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I used to have my my doubts about it, and and I actually only I only drew it for the first, oh, you know, maybe ten episodes or something like like that. But I, because I, I, to be honest with you, I really didn't like the biochips. Mm. But years later, after I'd become Dave Watchman Gibbons, um, they were keen to get me back on the comic, and they said, "Well, you can write Road Trooper if you like." So I said, "Great." So I wrote some Road Trooper, and I got rid of the biochips. 
and the unanimous opinion of the audience this time was bring back the biochips. <laughs> so it shows you that, that, it shows you that I have no idea of what the audience wants, but it was an interesting experience for me anyway. <laughs> I, I, you mentioned some thing called Watchmen. I, I think we'll touch on that a bit later. I'm not sure if uh, I'm not okay. sure if other people have heard about okay. it. Okay. If- it seems okay. No, well, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's good to illuminate the lesser-known um, areas of my work. So, yes, let's see if we, we can touch on that. Actually, I do have a, before, I, before, I move on to, before I move on to those, I want to ask you a question because I know you did the, uh, the Doctor Who Weekly and Monthlies. Who's your favorite Doctor? Mm. Well, you know, it's a bit like if you ask people who's your favorite James Bond. You know, it's, it's actually the Sean one Connery, who's in right. the... In, Sorry, <laughs> in the position. Where, sorry, it's Sean Connery, and anything it's, else is wrong. Yeah, well, Sean, it, it is Sean Connery, and I mean, even if you didn't grow up with Sean Connery, you know from the minute you see him, it's Sean Connery. Mm. Um, but um, no, with with the with the Doctor, the one that I grew up on, and the one I remember being terrified by was the William Hartnell one, because oh, uh, okay. he was this scary scary Victorian gentleman and, and and you know it was black and white TV and yeah. very scratchy and the sets were a bit hokey and, and <laughs> it, it had a really strange atmosphere about it um, I mean the, the one I drew the most was um, Tom Baker who I mm, eventually yes. met who had no idea who I was <laughs> or that I'd spent years drawing him he, he, he was quite easy to draw because basically he had a big nose and a toothy grin and a fat chin and loads of curly hair. Yeah, yeah. I had a slight problem. I had a slight problem when it changed to being Peter Davison because nice guy, but essentially looked like a blancmange, you know. <laughs> um, and um, but he was kind enough to to let us actually go to the TV centre where they were filming oh, wow. it and take lots of reference photos of him. So, um, and I actually, I think in the end, got better likenesses of him maybe even than I did of of Tom Baker. But, right. I mean, again, I have to put my cards on the table. I was never a dyed-in-the-wool hardcore um, Doctor Who fan, but I really mm. enjoyed drawing his adventures because they had, they had the sort of science fiction aspect and they had adventure and stuff happening mm. and a bit of humour as well, mm. which which I've always liked to get a bit of humor into my work how did uh, how did len ween find you um yeah well len didn't find me initially what happened i'd I'd been to the states um in the 70s trying to get work from dc comics and that which is where i first met paul levitz who, who later went on to become the publisher of dc i met him when he was just um, an, an office boy, really. Um, and I left my samples with DC and had them handed back to me with thanks, but no thanks, you're not quite ready, yeah. by a guy called Michael Us- Michael Uslan, who later went on to produce Batman. all the Tim Burton Batman movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but he gave my artwork back to me. Yeah. And uh, so I thought... Uh, uh, Okay, and, and I used I used those samples actually to get work in, in England. But then in the very early 80s, um, Dick Giordano and Joe Orlando, who were two executive editors from DC, actually came to England to recruit British artists to work on their comic books. And they were offering us so much better a deal, like, you know, reprint money, better page rate, 
you got your artwork back. They even mm. gave you the board to draw the artwork on. Um, and we can never really quite work out why we did. We did hear f- from some cynical American artists who we later b- befriended that they were expecting the American artists to form a guild or a union oh. and go on strike. And so I thought it'd be quite handy to have, to have some cheap Brits, you know, yeah. cheap offshore labor waiting. <laughs> but of course, if you if you look at the, the history of American comics after the Brits arrived, you'll always know that we were very near the front of the barricades whenever any trouble went went yeah. down. So that would have backfired if that, if that had been the case. But um, yeah, so um, um, they invited me to go and work for them. And I ended up drawing Green Lantern, which was mm. edited and written by the late Len Wein then, um, he, he didn't, he recruited, um, Alan Moore. I remember Len oh. phoned me one night and said, Hey Dave, do you, do you know the, how I can get in touch with a British writer called Alan Moore? And I said, sure, I'll, I'll give you his phone number. And he phoned Alan up and, and said, Oh, this is Len Wein from DC comics. And Alan went, yeah, sure. And just put the phone down because he thought it was <laughs> some friends. Frank. Anyway, Len, in, you know, in, Len, Len did eventually get back in touch and he entrusted uh, Swamp Thing to Alan, which is, you know, Alan yeah. completely transformed. Uh, and it was really, I think, because of the, the successful tr- transformation of that, that they thought he would be the man to do the revamp of the Charlton characters, which eventually, as you know, became, I presume you know, became Watchmen. Yeah, I think we've heard of those yes, guys. Yes, yes, we have. Sorry, I think you had a question. Yeah, I just I think, to yeah. ask, in the entire time that you've known Alan Moore, have you ever seen him smile? Because I've never seen a picture of him smiling, ever. Uh, yeah, I've seen Okay. I just I mean, wanted to this see is a trick question, because yes, I, I, have, I have seen... No, I have seen Alan smile and laugh many, many times. He is a very humorous man, mm-hmm. and uh, I have shared many a joke with him. That's excellent. Does he like a pint? <laughs> Does he like what? Does he like a pint? Uh, I have had a pint pint with him. I don't yeah. think it's his favorite re- recreational mm-hmm. medium, but yes, I've, <laughs> I've, drunk, I've drunk beer with Alan. <laughs> uh, well, cons- considering Dave, say, sorry, go, go ahead. I said, "Nuff said." <laughs> considering that you brought it up, Dave, uh, this uh, this thing called Watchmen. When uh, when you yeah. and Alan were working on it, did you know what it was going to do? No, uh, I mean, it, no, we we had no idea. I mean, it, if we had, we probably would have been so immobilized at the prospect that we never would have done it you know you i mean it's obviously had a success and 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 got got an audience which we never foresaw i mean we just set out to do the kind of comic that we would want to read and do something which we found interesting and challenging mm-hmm. um and it, i mean it wasn't long before we realized that maybe we did have something uh, bigger on our hands. I remember we both went over to DC's offices in New York and after about the first three issues had been done and people were coming out of their offices to, sh- to shake our hands and wow. pat us on the back and <laughs> say, you know, this is just the most one- wonderful thing. Um, and of course, the problem with that was we still had, had another nine issues to do <laughs> and another nine to, to, <laughs> no to hopefully do to the, to the same standard. So, 
Yeah, I mean that that was quite um, quite a challenging thing to do. But w- no, we thought we'd we'd do the twelve issues and then it would disappear into the back issue bins and probably never see the light of day again. Um, I think you were wrong. <laughs> we were. <laughs> We were extremely wrong. (laughs) Thankfully. I will... uh, Yeah, we don't... don't Go ahead. I I said, thankfully, we we were wrong. And, Mm -hmm. and, yeah, it it went on to have a, uh, you know, commercial and a critical success Mm -hmm. that we were um, astonished by. Mm. It um, There's a a line from uh, friends in my my circle that... uh, uh, friends don't let friends read Watchmen, which is actually a good thing. Uh, the, the, it means that um, the moment you get there, it's nothing is ever the same. That you can't look at comics the same way. You can't just judge them the same way. So it's uh, it's very much a compliment, but a warning at the same time. I have friends that are very nervous well, that I identify yeah. with Rorschach. Go on. All right. <laughs> Well, I mean, it, it does seem seem to be, and I think this is part part of his success. That I, I, I know when people go into my local comic book store, and it's not just because it's my local comic book store, and they go, you know, I've been hearing about this graphic novel thing. I've read a couple. Well, you know, where should I start? And they invariably will be told, start with Watchmen. You know, so I think a lot of people do read Watchmen first, mm-hmm. um, and I think. You know, probably, um, you know, even if they don't read comic books particularly these days, because of the, the, the ubiquity of superheroes in movies, everybody's got kind of an idea of what superheroes are about. Yeah. Um, you know, the whole thing of, oh, you've got a secret identity or you've got a bat cave or you've got superpowers. So um, I think they're kind of primed for Watchmen. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I mean, um, I, it, it clearly is something, and I'm saying this in all modesty, that does stand apart and does give a completely different view of the average, uh, you know, superhero comic. Mm. Uh, do we... Uh, I'm, I'm just going to get a quick take from you. Um, mm. What are your thoughts on the, the current things happening around Watchmen? Well, my, my, my feeling is that Watchmen, and I've said this in print, I've even said this in print in the foreword to the last collection of mm-hmm. the original Watchmen that DC did. I've always felt that Watchmen is a novel. It's a self-contained novel. Mm-hmm. It's not a thing like X-Men or Justice League. It's a self-contained thing. And I think that's probably how it functions best. I completely un- understand, you know, DC or Warner Brothers' desire to do more with it. Um, so I generally try and not get involved with whatever is currently being done. Uh, and I do get asked about Before Watchmen and about Doomsday Clock. And mm-hmm. I just either say nothing or I say everything. So I generally just say no comment. All right. All right. Uh, what uh, you, you've worked with uh, the biggest names in the industry, uh, Frank Miller, John Romita Jr. You've worked with dozens. I could be here all day with dozens of names. Is there anybody that you've still not had a chance to work with that you you want to go? I want to do this with that person. Uh, well, f- 
Funnily enough, I, I think you might have misspoken just then because John Romita Jr., who, who I know a bit, he's one of the people I haven't collaborated with, oh. although we have spoken from time. <laughs> we, we, we have, you're perhaps a mind reader because we have spoken from time to time about, about collaborating. Oh. So you may well see that. Well, the, um, the reason but, I... But no, I mean, I... Mm-hmm. Go on. So the reason I brought it up was there was uh, the, the Guinness World Record of the fastest comic book attempt. I think John worked on that. Yes. You might have. So that was my loose, loose link there. You are technically correct in that case. Yes. It was a whole bunch of us um, at, at, a, at a convention in London all sat and drew a panel, I think, and then they, they assembled it. But he is a phenomenal artist, John, mm-hmm. John Romita. And as I say, I do know him a bit. He was actually responsible for me getting probably the worst hangover I've ever had <laughs> when he got me drinking, when he got me drinking shots of tequila, which isn't my normal recreational uh-huh. uh, element, I must say. But uh, <laughs> anyway, no, but I, I have been, I have been lucky enough, obviously, to work with outstanding writers like like Alan Moore, like Frank Miller, like Pat Mills and John Wagner. Mm-hmm. Um, I've worked with Mike Mignola and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez and Steve Rude and, uh, you know, all sorts of people. And, you know, with people that I grew up being huge fans of, you know, I did a version of Green Lantern with Stan Lee and mm-hmm. Will Eisner let Alan and I work on um, some spirit stories. So, to be honest with you, my bucket list is more or less all ticked <laughs> off there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been very, very lucky. And as somebody who came into this as a fan, and is still essentially a fan in many ways, I, I do sometimes have to pinch myself and just, you know, kind of re- re- rejoice at my good fortune. What's in your, uh, what's in your current standing order at uh, in your call order at your local comic shop? Uh, well, I, I I tend to get all the DC comics free, so I, I, <laughs> they're delivered to my uh, which which is uh, which is weird. It's one of those things. Be careful what you wish for because it may come true. But they do very kindly send me the the box of comp uh, graphic novels. So I, I I do I do read a few of those. I mean, I tend as much as anything to 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 follow the work of friends and people whose work I like, like uh, obviously anything that Frank does or Alan does or Mike Mignola or Garcia Lopez. Um, I, I, I'm also very fond at the moment just to throw, and I'm, the, the real problem with a list like this is you always miss somebody off yep. who you wish you hadn't. So let me just say that a comic I'm really enjoying at, at, at the moment is Mr. Miracle by right. Tom King and Mitch Gerrard. Mm-hmm. I just think that's phenomenal. And I love the Sheriff of Baghdad, which was the, the, the series they did before that. Um, and I think they're, they're really bringing new stuff to it. I suppose the other thing that I like is people storytelling in slightly different ways. Again, I'd have to mention Tom King's um, vision, which yeah. I thought was a wonderful piece of storytelling. And yeah. I love what David Aha did on Hawkeye. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the kind of things that I tend to look, look out for. Is there uh, sorry, I was thinking about the, the other, other sorts of work that you've done outside of the comics field. You did, well, it was comics, but you did it, uh, you did the inside sleeve for Jethro Tull's album uh, back in 76. <laughs> How did that come about? Yes. 
Uh, well, I, I, this was kind of towards the beginning of my, my career, and um, I got phoned up by this guy who said, oh, are you Dave Gibbons? Do you do comics? I said, yeah. He said, well, I wonder if you could help me finish off this job that I've got. It's, it's um, an album cover. It's supposed to be a, a comic strip, and it's Jethro Tull. I said, okay, well, I'm not particularly a fan, but, yeah, I'll, uh-huh. I'll come and see you about it. Sure. So uh, I went. I, I went to see this guy, and it was going to be a double spread. It was like the like a gatefold album that was supposed to be comic strip, mm-hmm. and he'd just drawn the first. He'd done the logo and the first picture, which was <laughs> copied from a photograph. And he wanted me. He, me helping him finish it was me draw, drawing the rest of the spread, <laughs> which amounts to about another thirty pictures. So anyway, I thought, well, it's quite well paid. So I went went away and did it. And I got a phone call one night. I was still living with my parents then. And this guy said, uh, um, is that Dave Gibbons? I said, yeah. He said, I'm, I'm uh, Ian Anderson's manager. You know, he's, he's the guy from Jethro Tull. Yeah. And he said, is this right that you're drawing the album cover? I said, yeah. He said, how far along are you? I said, well, it's almost finished. He said, really? We haven't seen anything. I want to come and see it. And so oh, does Ian. Yeah. So I told him where I lived, and about an hour later, <laughs> I, I, I said to my mum and dad, you know, that knock on the front door, that's going to be for me. It's going to be a rock star, okay? And they said, okay, fine, we'll, we'll leave you to it. And I remember they arrived very grumpy, Ian Anderson and his manager, and I ushered them into the dining room where I'd cleared the meal things away, and I had the bit, bit of artwork on the table with a black flap over it, you know, kind of paper flat, which mm-hmm. always makes things look more professional. Uh, and in those days, I used to smoke. And I, I remember that as I turned the, the cover of it back, I lit a cigarette. Oh. And in the time it took to pass an opinion, I'd more or less smoke the whole cigarette in one drag. <laughs> and <laughs> um, they looked sort of, sort of serious. And then Ian Anderson broke a smile. He went, yeah, that's really good. I like it. <laughs> so that was a tremendous, a tremendous relief. Um, and um, a, um, a friend of mine ran an article in the local paper. He was a journalist, you know, about kind of lo- local boy makes good, earns a fortune from doing rock and roll album cover. Yeah. Um, and through that, I, I, I actually was contacted by um, an artist called Mick McMahon, who you would know is one of the the Judge Dredd artist. And it mm. turned out he, he only lived about, oh, about, you know, three miles away from where I did in those <laughs> days. And we and we, we became friends and we actually shared a studio together for um, a year or two. So that was probably that and the money I got f- from it, which went a long way towards the deposit for the house I was about to buy with my girlfriend, you know, mm. was you know left me with quite quite a good memory of that but as i say i i've never particularly been um a jethro toll right. fan but uh, <laughs> Except for that moment. you know it was, it was yeah excellent um dave i wanted to ask you about uh literacy uh you are you were named uh comics laureate for the comics literacy awards back in 2014 yeah. one of the things that i've always I've always held dear is that it doesn't matter what a kid reads as long as they're reading because that's what's going to set them on the path. Yeah. How important was this to you? 
Well, I mean, it certainly set me on the path. Uh, um, you know, and, and as I say, I was able to read much earlier than I otherwise would have been. And, um, um, I, yeah, I was very pleased to be asked to be comics laureate. I mean, in a sense, it wasn't an official position, but it was to be the spokesman for a charity mm -hmm. called Comics Literacy um, Awareness. And it was a really interesting experience. Um, I went to a few schools and I went to some librarian conferences and teacher conferences. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were, I, I was surprised actually, because in a sense, we were pushing on a door that wasn't even really shut you know most teachers and librarians nowadays unlike when i was at school are very receptive to mm. comics um and so we were it was really as much telling them what was available and kind of turning them onto the various things that comics could do and the techniques of comics so they had a better technical um understanding of it i think the the thing that sticks with me was my stepdaughter um, uh, was was training as a teacher and she is now a qualified teacher and one of her uh, one of her training posts was at, at a school for children with learning difficulties oh. you know kids who didn't read very easily and they got talking one day um, about comics and graphic novels and one particular kid who wasn't very communicative you know put put his hand up and said please miss I love manga Huh. And she's uh, the 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 conversation went on, and she mentioned that her stepfather drew comics, but no nobody had heard of me, which right. is which makes a change. <laughs> and, um, so uh, so she she enjoyed that, and at the very end of the week, this kid who loved manga, he brought um, a sort of a parcel in with him, which was, and he said, "Miss, I wanted to show you this. This is my favourite thing I own." And she said, oh, great. And he opened it, and it was uh, Frank Miller's 300 graphic oh. novel. <laughs> so there was this kid who didn't read easily, but mm -hmm. who now loved a graphic novel and actually knew something about the Battle of Thermopylae yeah. from ancient Greece, which is something he otherwise would never have come across mm -hmm. at all. And, you know, I think knowledge and education are so important and reading is the key to all of that. If you can't read easily, you know, you can't, you can't be educated as easily. So that, that was a, a great thing to be part of. And um, I, I also made contact with the Oxford University Press, who are very, who are a very prestigious publisher of educational books. And I helped them put together an educational series of what they called graphic texts, right. where I, I actually explained to them how comics worked uh, and, uh, you know, was a consultant editor to make sure that the comics read read properly and they've had a really good um, reception in schools again particularly with children who have um, reading difficulties so mm -hmm. that, that was a great thing to be part of excellent uh, a couple more questions we're, we're getting close to the hour so uh, and I don't want to I don't want to take okay. up too much of your evening uh, when it comes, okay. when it comes to the changes um, in the comics industry around the movies around big scale entertainment. Uh, do you feel that there's, what sort of progression do you think will happen around the content creators? Is it a good thing that the movies are happening, that there's big budgets? Do you think it'll drive the search from entertainment companies to find more skilled people 
to find original ideas? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's been many years now that, that comics have been translated into movies. I mean, even if you think of things like Men in Black, I mean, that mm. actually was um, a comic, but not, yeah. not a particularly visible comic, but, mm -hmm. but, it, but it was. Yeah. I, I, I mean, even outside the, the, the well-known superheroes. Um, and I think the essential difference now is that they movies tend to be based much more faithfully on the source material. If you look at what Marvel has done with their movies, mm -hmm. you know, they've more or less followed the storyline of the Marvel Universe. You know, mm -hmm. they st started at the, the beginning with actually quite faithfully told origin stories. And really, the people who are making the movies nowadays seem to have a really good appreciation of what a particular comic is really about. And I certainly have been thrilled, particularly with the Marvel movies. And I think the Marvel movies have also kept um, a lightness of touch. You know, I said earlier that I think humour is, is an important in ingredient. And I think maybe that's one way they've outshone the DC movies, which mm -hmm. have tended to be a little serious and a, li a, a little more grim. I mean, Watchmen had to be grim. It's a grim story anyway. But I, I think Superman perhaps recently could have been dealt with slightly more colourfully. Mm -hmm. And sure. indeed, it's interesting, having seen the latest Justice League movie uh, only a week or two ago, there is a conscious effort to br brighten him up a bit now. Um, and, 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 and again, you know, as they're evolving, um, Thor Ragnarok mm. almost looked like it, it, it was Jack Kirby pages. You know, it yeah. was very bold designs, very bright colors, wonderful sense, sense of humor. Mm. So I think they're kind of um, evolving. And um, I'm sure they will be a fixture of the, of the entertainment firmament for um, a long time to come because audiences seem to... Lap, lap them up. I think they're going to have to keep ringing the changes to stay relevant, though. Mm. Um, and um, again, mm. I, I mean, I think what they, what Hollywood has discovered is that comic book creators do know how to tell good stories very directly and very economically. Mm. And of course, also with a comic book, you know, it helps filmmakers and producers to visualise what they're going to get, you know, because mm. in a sense, although it is a different skill, comic books could be considered in some respects as storyboards right. and um you you know in a sense it's much easier to sit down and read a comic and get and get get an idea of what a story's about and how it's going to look than to read a screenplay um so yeah i i and and again for the comic book creators because you know um contracts and everything that are so much fairer these days but i think the days of people giving away all their rights for a pittance mm. are past yeah. and and again i think there is also the effect which you know particularly happened uh with watchmen where whether you like the movie or not and i did happen to like the movie but whether you like the movie or not we sold about a million copies of the graphic novel so that meant that wow. the people people saw my drawings and in mm. red Allen's words and that million people wouldn't probably otherwise have right. seen it. Right. So um, I think even from the viewpoint of turning people back towards the source material, mm. they probably on balance are a very good thing. Would you be keen to work on a rogue trooper movie if they decided to turn it into a film? <laughs> um, well, it would 
be an interesting thing thing to to explore. Uh, I, I mean, um, again, um, I I don't know how much it benefits comic book artists to be directly involved like that. I mean, although I was involved to a degree with Watchmen and to a much lesser degree with the Kingsman movies, mm. really, I think you should leave the experts to do what they're going to do. I, I would I would love to be a consultant or a producer on mm. um, a Watchman on a Road Trooper movie. Uh, but I, how much beyond that I would want to be uh, involved would rather depend. Um, but I s- certainly think that, r- that Road Trooper would make uh, a great movie. I think there's so many of the 2000 AD properties mm. that would translate very, very well. And I mean, after this, you know, slight misfire that was the... the uh, um, you know the the um, original dread movie yeah. Yeah. um i think that the the, the later dread movie was was pitch perfect yeah, and i yeah. thought you, you know could be in the beginning of a a, a whole raft of mm. of 2000 ad stuff let's let's hope that that does come to pass mm. cuz i think there's some really really great material there i think it would work for netflix as an anthology series that you feed in Oh, Short yeah. story about Road Trooper, uh, then it's ABC Warriors, then it's Dread, Nemesis, then it's Anderson, and then just Strong Team Dog. Uh, I would love to see ABC sure. Warriors. Well, I mean, I mean, yeah, and and I mean that stuff. It would work particularly well because you know, being a weekly comic, mm. it, it's already in a very strict episodic form so mm. it, and I mean it it was done in a way to keep the readers reading so right. yeah it would be wonderful to have the space that TV would allow to really explore the stories and the uh, characters so uh, yeah I mean perhaps that perhaps that might might be the next direction that mm. um, action movies go uh, I two two quick movie related ones and then I'll, then I'll wrap up for you um, Vic kind of uh, okay rushed me on this one because I was gonna I was gonna ask you a Green Lantern movie that you could contribute to. Yeah. Do you think the Sinestro core type concept would work um, in the DC universe for the movies? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I was uh, you know I was very sorry that the Green Lantern movie wasn't more than it was because in mm. a sense. Um, you know, it, it was the kind of cosmic key to the whole the whole DC universe. Yeah. I mean, it seems now that what they're going towards is uh, Kirby's fourth world, which is great, and we've seen the boom tubes and the parademons, yeah. and I'm sure we're going to see Darkseid and all those characters. But uh, but I thought in the way that, say, Guardians of the Galaxy has, is that cosmic area yeah of the Marvel universe, Green Lantern could have been that. And the basic idea of Green Lantern, I've always loved, you know, this kind of galactic police force. Mm. Uh, And I think more could be done with that. I guess they could reboot it. And for all I know, they may be intending to do that anyway. Mm. Um, But I I think, yeah, it was, it was a shame that, that that Green Lantern movie went, went the way it did. And I thought it was also quite poignant as well that the, what I thought was one of the best Marvel movies was called <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. And in fact, the motive force between Green Lantern was a different Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I don't know whether they were intentionally tweaking DC's nose with that. Yeah. But um, yeah, um, no, I, I think the whole whole Sinestro thing and the whole idea of, of Green Lantern could become a 
really vital part of a DC movie. DC movie universe and right. you know it'd be great to see it happen I'm going to tie it back to one of the first questions we, one of the first things we talked about uh, you saw Batman versus Superman you saw Justice League what was it like for fanboy 10 year old Dave Gibbons <laughs> to see the world's finest up on the screen um it was kind of bittersweet because, of course, well, the fact of the matter is that although Batman and Superman are obviously DC's biggest characters, it's actually quite difficult to make them work in a story together because they are, are so different in their in their characters and in their powers and in their mission, in their raison d'etre, if mm-hmm. I may go all French on you. <laughs> I mean, um, the thing, uh, I mean, when the... The world's finest that I read when I was growing up, all the superheroes were good old boys, you know, and and Batman was not a terrifying figure. He was a rather frivolous figure, and Superman wasn't a god. He was just a kind of super-powered uncle, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, and so they, it worked great in those days because you didn't really question their deeper motivations. But I found, for instance, when I came to write a world's finest comic book miniseries, that what I had to play off was the contrast between them. You know, the fact that, that, that well, this, this was my take, that they're both orphans, okay, but uh, Batman has seen his parents gunned down in front of him and has seen them bleed out on the sidewalk. He knows they are dead. Beyond any doubt, they are dead, and he has no hope left. Whereas Superman intellectually knows that Krypton exploded, but there's always been the idea that maybe they didn't all die. Maybe somewhere they live on. So he's a he's a character of hope. So mm. you've got like yin and yang. You've got the dark and mysterious Batman and the bright and vivid Superman. Mm. And you have to, to my mind, you have to play them together like that. You have to play to their contrast. And I thought that was probably what slightly dulled for me the enjoyment of the Batman versus Superman movie, mm-hmm. that they were both dark. They were both really miserable. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I mean, admittedly, in what I thought was ra- rather a poor payoff, their mm-hmm. their mothers were both called Martha, you yeah. know. But, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and so I was a little bit di- disappointed in that. But I was really pleased to see with the Justice League movie, they brightened the whole thing up. They've made it more adventurous. They brought Superman back more colourfully. Uh, and I hope that's the way they're going to go with them because I do think that's the key to making those characters work together. But yeah, but even with my adult criticism of all this, you know, the 10-year-old me that you so rightly identified would have been thrilled beyond measure to see them come alive so convincingly on the screen. And he wouldn't have believed that such a thing was mm-hmm. possible. I mean, frankly, what they can do in movies now, if you can imagine it, you can make it real. And yeah. I think that's, it just feels like magic, you know? Mm-hmm. Dave, I want to say thank you so much for being so gracious with your time. We wrap up with one, okay. we wrap up with one last question for every guest. Uh, we have a lot of people listening who are okay. creatives in their own right. They're getting started or they're trying to, trying to find their break. Uh, is there one piece of uh, advice, one pearl of wisdom that you would want to share to anybody maybe trying to break into the comics industry uh, or trying to make their way with their own creative output? 
Well, uh, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a man who's aware of, of, of many mysteries of comics because I have just written a book that I, is on sale and it may be on sale down South Africa. Yeah. I certainly hope so, which is called How Comics Work. Uh, and I've done this book in conjunction with a friend of mine called Tim Pilcher. And um, it really is everything I know about writing and drawing comics. And um, we trawled my my archives uh, for the purposes of that as well. Um, and it's got all sorts of my process drawings and specific tips and specific procedures and methods for writing and drawing comic book material. Right. But I suppose... I suppose if I was going to sum it up, in any creative endeavor, you know, you can't tell people how to create. But what I've always found effective is to work from the general, from the large, down to the particular and small. In other words, if I'm drawing a picture, I start with the, the, the composition of it, the bigger shapes, the bigger lines of action, the... the the overall effect of it in a very loose way and then refine that down to the details and then the last thing I'll draw will be like people's fingernails or something like, like that. When you're starting out, you often put a lot of work into drawing the details first and then you find out that in the bigger picture they don't quite work and you can waste a lot of time doing that. Right. So I would always, in, in the sense of writing a story, you should establish what the story is about, what the broad sweeps of the action are about, and then refine it down into into scenes and, and actual words and pictures. And the same when you're doing um, a drawing um, as well. And I find that if you've got some sort of approach like that, that it isn't restrictive, that it means that by the time you get to the later stages, you're working on a really solid foundation and it increases your confidence that, the, that what you're going to end up with is, is, is going to work. So that would be my absolute you know, boiled down nugget of wisdom. But as I say, if you want to know more, How Comics Work by Dave Gibbons and Tim Pilcher, it'll tell you everything. That is fantastic. And I think we're, I'll add that to, uh, to the show notes as well uh, when the podcast goes out. So okay, thanks. happily give a plug to that. Thank you. Oh, no, Dave, only a pleasure. Thanks. How far away before we get the, uh, the autobiography? Well, it's um, I, I'm doing it in rather an unusual way. It's not a chronological uh, thing. It's not you know my my early struggles and my later success. It's it's done as a kind of anecdotal um, autobiography with um, alphabetical listings. Yeah. And um, I've actually written about a hundred thousand words, and I'm I'm about uh, that's about ninety five percent of it. It really just needs a bit of an edit and a polish up and filling in some areas that I've missed. Um, so it's going to be a pr pretty big book. I mean, 100,000 words is quite big. Uh, and as I say, I'm a real hoarder and I've kept so much of the early stuff I've done. So there's going to be some, you know, there's going to be some of the well-known stuff in there, but there's going to be lots of, of examples of my work that people probably haven't seen because they've been for advertising or rather obscure papers and magazines right. and, and so on so um uh, again what what i tried to do with the books i've been responsible for like with watching the watchman which was the story of how we created watchman mm. and with the how comics work mm. is i actually try and do 
the kind of book that I'd like to read. And I've got a room full of books about art and drawing and comics. And I try and write the kind of book that I would find interesting. So um, hopefully, um, you know, uh, uh, my professional autobiography, and it does kind of stick to comics and stuff, Mm -hmm. not all the boring details of where I went for my holiday or or my wife's maiden name or anything (laughs) like that. You know, it's, it's, it's stuff that, relates to what I think most people would find the, the mm. interesting part of my life. Um, so, yeah, so I'm, 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 I'm hoping, because we are quite a way along with it, that it might even be out at this time next year. Uh, mm. If not, then soon after that. Well, Dave, we would love to be... And of sh- course, and, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and, and of course, for all you pe- people out there, this publishing schedule means that not only is how comics work but also dave gibbons the autobiography are on the market perfectly in time for christmas Christmas. and make the ideal christmas gift ideal christmas gift for the comic geek in your life this uh you can tell you're working with a pro (laughs) when the segue just slides straight in dave Oh yes. <laughs> well, we would be more than happy to. Be, we would be more than happy to be a shameless plug for you next year when the autobiography comes out. If you would Good. like to have us back. Okay, I will see you this time next year, if not before. Lovely, fantastic, <laughs> Dave. Thank you again so much for your time. Right, I really do appreciate it. All right, guys, you're very welcome. Nice talking to you, and uh, hopefully speak again one day. Absolutely. Thanks very much, Dave. That was Release the Geek, the official podcast of Geek XP. What the chain of command is, it's a chain I go get and beat you with till you understand who's in rut and command here. To contact the show, you can email us at releasethegeek, one word, at geekxp.co.za. Thanks for listening. I'll be back.